Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Welcome to episode 149 of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Mark McEvely and I, Matt Jessup, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of the financial markets in financial planning. This week, my guest is Aaron Kramer. He is a wealth advisor uh, with our firm, Jessup Wealth Management, and he recently passed his CFP, his Certified Financial Planning Certification. Welcome, Aaron. Thank you. Happy to be back. It's been a little while. It's been a little while. Overdue. Yes. Overdue. <laughs> Overdue. So before we begin, Aaron, as always, I'm going to recap uh, performance for the month and the year for the major indices that we track for our listeners and viewers. And these numbers are as of the market close on May 9th, Aaron, and the data is from StockCharts.com. Starting off first, S&P 500 index for the month through last night down 3.4%, for the year down 1626 the Dow Jones, Dow Jones Industrial Average for the month down 2.22, and for the year down 11.26. The NASDAQ Composite for the month, Aaron, down 5.77, wow. and for the year down 25.71. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 Small Cap Index for the month down 5.43, and for the year down 21.22. Next, the Vanguard International ETF X United States for the month, Aaron, down 5.09, and for the year down 16.43. So tracking pretty much in line with the yeah, S&P year to date. Yeah. 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 Three-month T-bill currently sits at 0.9%. Two-year uh, Treasury yield is 2.57, Aaron, and the 10-year currently sits at 2.96, but we were briefly inverted. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and we we're briefly over that three also in that mm -hmm. tenure. Yeah. So next, uh, discussing big news headlines and current events from the past week. I mean, the big two, Aaron, obviously, is the market sell-off continues. And, you know, we've talked about this in the previous podcast. We're watching, um, you know, what's happening over in China specifically right. because of its relation to the supply chain mm -hmm. and their zero COVID policy and lockdowns in certain areas like Shanghai continue. And that obviously, the longer it goes on, the longer it spells trouble for the global economic recovery exactly, post-COVID. Exactly. Yeah, that, that's that's kind of my biggest concern right now, I would say, is the potential for extended shutdowns in China. And exacerbating these supply chain issues, not helping the inflation aspect of things, forcing the Fed to do more of the heavy exactly. lifting, which ultimately could orchestrate more of a hard landing than a soft mm -hmm. landing. Right, because I think the market's priced in that Obviously, interest rates are going up. We have inflation. All of that, in my opinion, it's priced in. What may not be priced into the market is those extended shutdowns because you can't really predict what China's going to do exactly. Well put. Well put. And it could change in a dime, right? Exactly. It really yep. could. So we'll get started. I'll start with uh, tweets, articles, and research from the week. I'll start, Aaron, if you're okay with Perfect. that. So my first chart that caught my eye is from the weekly research note from Top Down Charts, Aaron, from Saturday, May 7th. And the title of this topic is A History Lesson of Bear Market Rallies. It's a good chart. I like, I this, like chart. this chart. 
So um, before I discuss the chart, I want to remind uh, our viewers that Jenna's going to put this chart up uh, for our YouTube viewers right now. And then in addition, if you follow us on social media, you'll be able to um, obtain uh, pictures of these charts that we're about to discuss. Okay. So this chart that I'm about to show you is uh, about the Dow Jones Industrial Average. And what the chart does is it shows roughly 1928 through a decade later. And what it does, Aaron, is it highlights the specific sell-off in the Dow from 1929 until it bottomed in 1932. And what it does is it highlights that in a downtrend, there still can be significant bear market rallies. Okay, exactly. And so I'll give you some examples. The first initial sell off when it started to rally in a very short time period, it rallied 48% mm -hmm. sold off again, more rallied 16% sold off more lower low, then it went up 24% sold off more made another lower low up 26. Yep. And then the final kind of push sold off more and then at one point rallied 38% before it continued to have its final uh, wave down. Now, why am I highlighting this? Again, the market is able to post some significant short-term rallies during an overall downtrend. And just like it is able to post some significant short-term sell-offs during an uptrend, which we've seen many of those over the last decade. So I just want to kind of show this that if we get some sort of relief rally, mm -hmm. bear market rally, I, I'm throwing this out there just so people think, well, that's over. You know, we rallied, you know, 10, 15 percent off the lows. Right. That must mean the coast is clear. And it's not always going to be like that. The, the, the thing I think of is COVID, that massive, just quick V-shaped recovery. It's not always like that. It's not. Um, so I think it's, it's possible. Obviously, I don't think it's going to be as bad as a great recession or great Correct. depression, I should say. Correct. You know, but, and so, you know, when you say that, Aaron, the first thing that comes to my mind is, you know, the financial stability or, you know, the, the current balance sheets of a lot of these companies, the poster childs that got hit so hard in 07 during mm -hmm. the great financial crisis, they're in a lot different um, balance sheet makeup, meaning, in my opinion, they're better right, than they right. were in 07. Uh, but it still doesn't negate the fact that, you know, there's obviously some issues out there. Mm -hmm. And I just don't want people to see a rally and think, well, ultimately, it's, in my opinion, oh, it's safe to get it's real over, aggressive yeah, again. Risk on again. Just right. know that rallies during a downtrend, and sometimes they can look pretty significant, mm -hmm. are not uncommon. It's a good way of saying That's it. That's a great way to say it. Okay. So my next thing I have is stock market weakness is obviously starting to make mainstream media headlines. Okay. So um, this post I saw was from Ryan Dietrich. Um, and we um, mentioned him a lot on the yep. podcast, his uh, Twitter post, and this was from May 7th on Saturday, um, shows um, a snippet of Drudge Report. <laughs> okay. And it always they always get the guy 
on the floor <laughs> at the NYSC that is completely stressed out, right? <laughs> he usually has one, sometimes two phones, right? Yep. And, you know, he's in the middle of doing whatever, you know, he or she does on the floor. So they got the stressed out <laughs> trader, you know, with well, one phone. He's stressed out because there's only like four of them left on the <laughs> trading floor now. Because there's so much he has to do. They cut back so much. And the title of it is Stocks Struggle, quote, nowhere near a bottom. And obviously they linked some article associated yeah, with it. Yeah. And so this is what Ryan said. This was an actual headline this week. Coupled with the CNBC Markets and Turmoil special on Thursday night, good chance we are indeed near a bottom, he says. So this is my comments for listeners. When we see stock market-related headlines hit mainstream media news as the main topic, coupled with these evening CNBC specials like last Thursday, Aaron, mm -hmm. that's historically been a pretty good contrarian indicator. Now, here's my words of wisdom. We are not in normal times per se. Right. And we could be in for a bit of a breather sooner rather than later. Could start today. Could start in two weeks. Right. However, you know, how long that breather lasts, that's the that's question. The unknown, right? That's the question. Okay. So, again, I think um, my first two are somewhat tied that it wouldn't surprise me at some point here in the near term to get a bit of a relief rally. Mm -hmm. But with the data, I'm concerned this, how long it's going to stay. Right, right. Just being honest. So um, next topic, what to make of consumer credit data. Okay. So uh, before I turn it over to you, Aaron, this caught my eye. This is a post by Charles Payne on May 7th. And his tweet said, breaking news, late yesterday, the latest update on consumer credit for March was released without fanfare or media coverage. There was an increase in consumer credit of $52.4 billion, billion in a single month, marking the highest single month uh, increase since December of 2010. OK, so um, why am I highlighting this? OK, data shows, obviously, with this being the largest gain going back over a decade, one could say that the negative effect of inflation yeah. is causing the American consumer to put more purchases on credit. If that is true, that's not good. It's not especially with two thirds of our economy, consumer spending led. Right. I highlight this because this is definitely something mm -hmm. I think our viewers and listeners should pay attention to. And we are going to as well. Yeah, I, I agree. One thing I'd like to see, though, is kind of what is the average kind of consumer credit been going back pre-COVID? Because this chart doesn't necessarily go go pre-COVID. You no, know, the chart Fully. that we're going to show in our show notes goes back to May of 21. And, you know, it seems to be the average tongue in cheek was about 20, 20 billion. OK. Now, what I what, what, what kind of made me pause and think about it is, you know, that's when the Fed really kind of started to, to raise interest rates. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, maybe one could sit there and say, well, it was a responsible consumer going out and locking in rates today on things right. before they went up. 
So I'll be curious to see how this progresses in the coming months. Um, but to see it this early in the cycle, meaning in this post-COVID environment, as people have paid down debt, there I wasn't expecting it to be this that quick. increase yeah. that quick, like you just yeah, said. Yeah, it's interesting. I wonder if it has to do with kind of things opening up more and people are just excited to get out and spend and travel. I don't, I don't know. Could be. It's, Could be. That's, that's a... Something to keep an eye on. It is. Especially it is. this early in the cycle. So those are the things that caught my eye. Obviously, you know, the, the theme I have is, you know, I definitely have concerns about the market in the near term. Mm -hmm. I don't want to mix words and be very direct. On a longer term basis, I'm, I'm still pretty bullish. We are as a practice yeah, on a longer yeah, term basis, yeah. right? It's all about timeline. Short term, you know, the next couple of quarters, I think the market's going to be in for, you know, a lot of volatility up and down. And I, I just want to kind of throw it out there that a bear market rally would not be unheard of. And that might not be the end of it. Yeah, it could be a teaser. Could be a teaser. Okay. I'll send it over to you to kind of highlight what caught your eye. Yeah, I got a couple good ones here. Um, so this this first uh, first thing I found is a chart from Bank of America Global Research on 5-6. Uh, so um, this chart shows um, existing home sale inventory versus home permits to build. Um, and this chart goes back to 20 it, years. It does go back 20 years, a little over 20 years, back yeah. to 99. Yeah. Um, so one thing I thought was interesting about this chart is that we're pretty much at a 20-year low for existing home sale inventories, which, yes. is, which is extremely, extremely low. Um, but we're also at a 20-year high for um, home permits. So one thing I think is interesting in looking at this is kind of thinking of supply and demand. Yes. So with interest rates going up, I think we could kind of see a pretty quick flip in this chart to where supply really picks up and um, home prices kind of drastically fall because there is so much more supply over the next couple of years. Yeah, I mean, this chart is definitely from a future supply standpoint mm -hmm. with what they're going to be building is definitely, I think, a concern slash a headwind for the home prices. Yeah. Yes. I'm glad you brought this up. Yeah. And you can couple that with rising mortgage interest I think rates. That's a huge factor. Now, kind of like how I gave the analogy a couple minutes ago about the strength of balance sheets of a lot of these companies that get hit hard during 07. Mm -hmm. Let's just talk about underwriting requirements for mortgages. And we've talked about yeah, this. Yeah, they're extremely strict right they're now. Extremely strict. And so kind of the analogy I was talking about before is, you know, just because XYZ stock sold off X percentage from 2007 to the bottom in March of 09, mm -hmm. You know, one might sit there and say, well, Aaron, you know, I'm looking at all this housing data and I'm assuming housing is going to sell the same off thing. as much as it did during that time period. Right. And, and looking at kind of this chart over 07, 08, 09, it, it's a pretty steep fall. Mm -hmm. But with those underwriting requirements and that might more qualified buyers that are taking out these loans and, and mortgages, I think it's probably not going to be that drastic. I think it's an excellent point. You know, again, could housing uh, specifically for this topic of housing prices, could that have a headwind, especially in the next couple of years with more inventory hitting the market mm -hmm. with rising mortgage interest rates that definitely could. Yeah. 
And I think the saving grace, as you pointed out, with under underwriting requirements still very strict, mm -hmm. it's not like you're walking into a loan office in 2006 <laughs> and literally just saying, yes, I have a job. Yes, this is my income <laughs> and not showing any paperwork. And they'll give you three houses and they'll give you multiple <laughs> houses. That's not happening right now. OK, right. So I think that, you know, that is, you know, let's look at the silver linings right now. That's a silver lining. Right. Right. What's the silver lining for how long the downtrend in stocks last? Guess what? A lot of corporate balance sheets are, are still rock very good, solid. Right. OK, there are silver linings out there. Mm -hmm. But with this amount of inventory hitting the market with higher rates, that's a big nut to crack. That's a big headwind mm -hmm. that a lot of people need to be aware of. Exactly. And so the other thing I want to throw out there when I see this chart that you posted is this. I think you're going to see places where maybe there is a second home, right? That might begin to struggle more right. than areas that that's not as common. Common. So the vacation spots that could stuff struggle. Like that, that could, could slow struggle down a bit. That could, because you know, if we start to hit some softness in the economy, you know, just like it happened in previous you know recessions, if we go into one, which could happen here. Mm -hmm. You might have people say, well, I really don't visit that property that much. Right. And this could go down and maybe they looked at it through the lens of an investment and not just something that they were going to use for their family's personal enjoyment mm -hmm. might make them sell it. Yeah. And what's interesting is kind of overlaying that with your your consumer credit. There you go. Interesting. I don't know. Something to throw out there. All right. What else you got? Next one I have is some some interesting data on used car prices. So um we talked about, I think you and Mark talked about this probably about a month ago. About a month used, ago. Yeah, used car about, prices. It's about, it's about accurate. Um, and they were, when you referenced it, the prices dropped about 4%. Um, but I wanted to highlight. And that was a, in March. Yeah, that was in March. Yep. And I wanted to highlight a blog post um, from Zero Hedge um, on 5.7 titled, Used Car Prices Are Crashing at a Near Record Pace. Um, so we've got a chart here. It's the Mannheim Used Car Index. Uh, it's, a, it's a monthly rate of change. Um, and outside of the COVID shock and great financial crisis of 2008-2009, uh, the Mannheim Used Vehicle Index, a wholesale tracker of used car prices, printed the most significant monthly decline in terms of rate of change, averaged out over three months in April at 6.4%. 6.4%. So that's a pretty big decline. Um, again, it didn't beat the April 2020 printout um, of minus 11.2% nor 2008 of a 11.5 decline. Um, but those two periods again, were were full blown financial crises. Um, so I think it's interesting. I think it really is. I don't, I, what's your opinion on why they're falling? Do you think it's interest rates? Do you think it's supply started to pick up? Um, in, in new vehicle markets? What, what's your opinion on it? Great question, Aaron, I'm gonna give you my two cents on this. So I don't think the increase of new cars is there yet. And I'm mm -hmm. going to give you an example of it here in a second. I think it, personally, it's a combination of rates moving higher for, for auto loans. So the affordability has gone down. Right. Example is you maybe got a 2% loan and now say the loan's four, four and a half. Well, you can only afford X amount of car. Right. I think that's the first factor. I think the second factor is people are thinking hey, you know, how long is inflation going to last? And I need to be more 
I need to be frugal. more conservative with right. my personal finances. Right. So that's, that's the concern I have. Mm -hmm. That's the concern I have. So it's kind of consumer, consumer sentiment right could now. Be. It could be. Mm -hmm. So let me give you a reason why I don't think it's new supply. We have a family friend uh, who reached out and um, Rachel was um, kind of helping her out. She was looking at getting uh, a potentially a new car because she owned a hybrid and the battery for the hybrid died. Mm. Okay. And, you know, they replaced those suckers. Not she was cheap. quoted like, you know, eight to 10 grand. Wow. And so since it was a used car, she was thinking, well, does it make sense for me to go out there and just get like more of an entry level new car that's priced in like the low 20s? Right. Right. Which makes sense. So um, she went to the dealers, several dealers over the weekend. OK. And this is up to date data from just a couple business days ago. Yeah. Um, the average car that was priced in the low 20s, she told us had a asking price of 15 percent over msrp wow. wow that's crazy and it wasn't unheard of a couple years ago where you could get a car for under msrp that's right. negotiated right and right? so when i heard that obviously and there's very limited supply she said on the lot okay you know that i think that tells me this is not caused by an influx of supply on the new car or new automobile side interest right yeah and, you know, with how, you know, globally connected we are, you know, these extended shutdowns in China continue, you know, my understanding is, is, is specifically Shanghai is a very important place for auto part manufacturing. Right, right. You know, if they're not shipping that stuff and that stuff not necessarily flown on airplanes, mm -hmm. you know, you could have continued supply issues. Where people can't even fix their cars. Gets, right? It could lead to that. Right. It could lead to that. So um, this you would think would be buoyed by the lack of new supply. Mm -hmm. And with it going down, definitely something I'm glad you highlighted. Yeah, I think interesting. we need to, we need think, to keep our eyes on. You would think supply on. would be picking up, which would be causing this to, to come down. But I, I think it's probably what you said. It's the the consumer not wanting to spend Affordability right now. Affordability is, is making their... Inflation's higher. Yeah, they can't afford as much as they did before. Maybe you have the consumer a little bit more constrained. Yeah. And that's that's definitely something that we are watching closely and I have a concern of. Mm -hmm. Good. Okay. All right. I got one more for you. Okay. That's all right. Let's do it. Um, so kind of talking about the market and um, being, being more volatile recently. Yes. Um, so I had, I wanted to pull some charts that are forward market returns um, when volatility is high. So okay. um, this is another tweet from zero hedge. Um, and this was posted on five, eight, Okay. Um, so before I kind of dive into the charts here, I wanted to talk about what volatility is and how it's tracked. Good. Um, so this is typically tracked by the CBOE Volatility Index or VIX. A lot of people call it the VIX. VIX. Um, so this is a real-time index that represents the market's expectations for the relative strength of near-term price changes of the S&P 500 index or SPX. Because it's derived from the prices of SPX, um, index options with near-term expiration dates, it generates a 30-day forward projection of volatility. So it's forward-looking. Forward-looking. Um, volatility, or how fast price change, is often seen as a way to gauge market sentiment 
and in a particular, the degree of fear among market participants. So it's, when volatility is high, it's usually there's some, some fear selling, stuff like that is going on. Yes. Okay. Um, so kind of diving into this chart here, um, it's interesting to note the forward-looking returns on the S&P 500 index since 1993 um, when you see volatility this high. So the first chart, there's two here. Um, the first one is going to show six-month forward returns um, and the worst performance of the with the VIX. Um, so the worst performance was when the VIX was just slightly kind of above average on that 20 to 30 range, mm -hmm. um, which is interesting to me. So when the VIX is very, very high, um, kind of in the 35 plus 40 range, um, the forward-looking returns six months out were kind of mid let's see the chart here, 12 to 16 plus percent. So they're really, just really in six good months, on just average. in six months. So um, it's kind of interesting. If you look at the low or normal kind of VIX range, zero to I'd say 15 to 20 percent, mm -hmm. uh, 20 percent range, the, the forward returns are pretty good. So six months out when it's very low is about six percent. Mm -hmm. um, but right in the middle, it's kind of like an inverted bell curve here. It when is. it's just slightly above average, it's uh, the returns are pretty bad, actually. They're, they're just about flat. So why do you think that is? What's your opinion on that before I jump into the 12-month the returns? I think ultimately you're kind of in that no man's land. Right. You know, I, I think that, you know, when volatility is kind of in that in-between period, it can kind of go either way. Mm -hmm. um, and especially the last, you know, 20, 25 years— We've spent, you know, periods of sideways chop. We've definitely, in my opinion, you know, the VIX is usually in the low 20s. That right. kind of makes sense to me. Um, the rule of thumb that I like to talk about with the VIX is, you know, anything above 30, you know, you tend to have fear in the markets. Mm -hmm. Anything above 40, you're seeing signs of capitulation. Right. Usually. Okay. Anything sub 20 is usually quote unquote a risk on environment for hedge funds is a good way of saying it. right and that period especially of 20 to 25 is kind of no man's land it can right. kind of, kind of go, go either way can go either way so that'd be my best kind of summary of it mm -hmm. and to be specific right now we're at about 35 yes and it, you know the thing that's crazy you brought this up it feels like we should be in the mid forties right now. <laughs> it does. It, it does. feels like we yeah. should. The, the moves in, in one day does feel like it should be higher. It should um, be, but it's not. So the twelve month returns, just kind of wrapping this up here, it's pretty much the same thing. Um, just the returns are quite a bit higher. So when we're above 35, 12 months out, the the market return on the S uh, SPX is twenty three plus, um, all the way up to to thirty five uh, when it's above forty and. Um, kind of in that low range, it's, again, good returns, 11 12%, kind of on average, I would say. And then right smack dab in the middle, kind of that 22 and a half to 25 range, it's pretty much zero. Crazy. So it's pretty interesting. I'm glad you highlighted this because in my two cents, you know, this rough patch that the market's going through, it could last another month. Mm -hmm. It could last another nine or 12 months. But I think statistically speaking, once you start to have stability in the market, when that time happens, right. and to see kind of these forward-looking returns when volatility is this high, at some point, you're going to see some pretty dramatic yeah, it's returns. it's when a lot of people make some money. That's when you make when a lot of money. comes back. That's when you make a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And this is a good reason why 
you know, it's not uncommon to see people wanting to take some some risk off the table in this type of environment. But when you see this chart, it's almost like a warning sign not to take too, too much. much off because things could turn a dime. You know, what happens if China completely switches policy opens right and back opens up. right back up and starts start shipping? Mm -hmm. You know, that's why you need to have some exposure. And it's tough to time that. It so is. It I is. think I like that you highlighted this. Yeah, I think it's I think it's prudent for the times we're in. I think it is very prudent <laughs> for the times we're in. Um, OK, I'm going to continue on uh, to the financial planning topic of the week. Is that OK, Aaron? That's perfect. OK, so this week, my topic and I'm going to garner your feedback on some of these things. I'm ready for it. The topic is I saw an article in Kiplinger's online and the title of the article was seven things medicare doesn't cover okay and this is as of may 4th of this year so Great. it's pretty recent okay so um we know obviously uh medicare covers a lot of things but i'm gonna highlight some things that people might not understand as yeah, a newbie might not be to medicare that they don't that it cover. doesn't cover yeah. okay uh seven things you ready first medicare doesn't cover prescription drugs mm -hmm. okay so Medicare doesn't provide uh, coverage for outpatient prescription drugs, but you can buy a separate Part D prescription drug policy that does, or a Medicare Advantage plan that covers both medical and drug cost. Okay, you can sign up for a Part D or medical Advantage coverage when you enroll in Medicare or when you lose other drug coverage. Um, so that's the first thing I think people sometimes don't think don't about, recognize don't realize that you have to get that part d you have to, to get separate coverage and it's action you have to take right you have to take okay second thing medicare doesn't cover long-term care okay so one of the largest potential expenses this is from the kipling's yes. article one of the largest potential expenses in retirement is the cost of long-term care the median cost of a private room in a nursing home was roughly 106000 in 2020, according to a Genworth cost of care study. A room in an assisted living facility cost on average about 51600 and 44 hours per week of care for a home health aide is about 55000 per year. Medicare provides coverage for some skilled nursing services, but not for custodial care, such as help with bathing, dressing, and other activities of daily living. But obviously you can buy a long-term care insurance policy, right. a combination of a long-term care and life insurance policy to cover these costs, et cetera, there's other things. Mm -hmm. But to highlight this, Medicare doesn't cover long-term care, your comments. Yeah, yeah, Medicare's whole deal is that they're expecting you to to improve or get better. So I think you even have to be in the hospital stay before they'll put you to a, a long-term care facility. I believe that's right. Or rehab. So they're, they're always right. wanting you to improve, right? Always wanting you to improve. <laughs> always wanting you to improve. Third item, Aaron, Medicare does not cover deductibles and co-pays. Okay. So Medicare Part A covers hospital stays. Part B mm -hmm. covers doctor services and outpatient care but you're responsible for deductibles and co-pays. Right. In 2022, you'll have to pay a Part A deductible of $1,556 before coverage kicks in. And you'll also have to pay a portion of the cost of long hospital stays. 
$389 per day for days 61 through 90 in the hospital and $778 per day after that. Be aware, over your lifetime, Medicare will only help you pay for a total of 60 days beyond the 90-day limit called lifetime reserve days, and therefore you'll pay the full, and, after, and thereafter, I'm sorry, Aaron, you'll pay the full hospital cost. Wow. Okay? Last thing I want to add is Part B typically covers 80% of doctor services, lab tests, x-rays, but you'll have to pay 20% of the cost after the $233 deductible in 2022. Hmm. Okay? So that's that one. Ready for the next one? I'm ready. Number four, Medicare does not cover most dental care. Okay? Yep. So Medicare doesn't, cover, doesn't provide coverage for routine dental visits, teeth cleanings, fillings, dentures, and most tooth extractions. That's where a lot of people get an advantage plan. So That's right. That. You're, did you write this article? I didn't, but... <laughs> Jenna, I, think, I think he's the ghostwriter for Kiplinger's. I say that tongue-in-cheek, listeners. He, uh, to my knowledge, is not. Uh, some Medicare Advantage plans cover basic cleanings and x-rays, but they generally have an annual coverage cap of $1,500. You know, the thing that I thought about when I read this article, AC, is a lot of dental offices now are offering their own kind of coverage, their mm -hmm. own type of kind of like payment plan for retirees right. and younger people that don't have dental coverage. Mm -hmm. So that's something that, you know, if you have your, your preferred uh, dentist and let's say you retire, you might have a conversation with their front office about, hey, I'm not going to have coverage. Should I go out and get an Advantage plan or should mm -hmm. I just get some, some sort some of financing, financing or payment plan or coverage from you that right. you have just for, you, for your office? Right. It is something I think that's worth talking about. Yeah, definitely. Any other comments on that no, one? That's perfect. All right, here we go. Number five. Medicare does not cover routine vision care, hmm. okay? Medicare generally does not cover routine eye exams or glasses. Exceptions include an annual eye exam if you have diabetes or eyeglasses after having certain kinds of cataract surgery. Okay. But some Medicare Advantage plans provide vision coverage and you may be able to buy a separate supplemental policy that provides vision care alone or includes both dental and vision. Any other Great. comments on that one? No, it sounds like the uh, the advantage plan is the the way to gap I keep everything. Hearing, <laughs> I keep hearing that term, don't you? <laughs> yes. Number six uh, of seven, Medicare does not cover hearing aids. Uh, this is what it says. Medicare does not cover routine hearing exams or hearing aids, Aaron, which can cost as much as $32.50 per ear. But some Medicare <laughs> Advantage plans cover hearing aids and fitting exams, and some discount programs provide lower-cost hearing aids. Here we go. Awesome. All right. Last but not least, number seven uh, to be aware of, Medicare does not cover medical care overseas okay overseas interesting. interesting okay let's see what they have to say about this excuse my flipping of papers okay let's see here medicare usually doesn't cover care you receive while traveling outside the united states except for very limited circumstances such as on a cruise ship within six hours <laughs> of a u.s port 
That's pretty specific. That is. Um, but some Medigap plans will cover 80% of the cost of an emergency care abroad up to a certain limit. Additionally, some Medicare Advantage plans cover emergency care abroad. Or you can buy a travel insurance policy that covers some medical expenses while you're outside the U.S. and may even cover emergency medical evacuation, which could otherwise cost tens of thousands of dollars to wow. transport you abroad on a medical plane or helicopter. So to give you an example, several years ago, I uh, went on a birding trip. My wife really wanted to go to Costa Rica. Yeah. So we went to Costa Rica and we bought our own travel coverage just for that trip. Right. I found it to be very economical. Mm -hmm. It covered emergency medical um, evac. It had coverage for in that country. And we bought that coverage through our, uh, our travel agent offered that. Right. And so just words of wisdom, you know, you're going to travel internationally might be something at least to look into. Yeah, consider it for sure. Consider that. Um, you think we should explain kind of what a Medicare Advantage plan is since we brought it up a I bunch? Think, I think you should. Yeah. So um, essentially what that is, it's kind of going to be a, a combination of supplemental policies. So back in the day, there would be um, prescription part D. XYZ, there's a bunch of different parts and they mm -hmm. kind of just combined all of that into what's called an advantage plan. So those are really kind of supplemented through what you would think of a normal health insurance company, uh, United Healthcare, Anthem, Blue Cross Blue Shield, something like that. Yep. So they're working with Medicare and kind of providing that additional coverage. And obviously you're going to pay a premium for that coverage. So that's Good what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. That's what those advantage plans are. And, you know, those are things you can shop on your own. I know there's a lot of entities out there where they're designed to help people shop around that mm -hmm. kind of finds that that Medicare Advantage policy that might make the most sense for them. Right. And I usually kind of tell people, um, you know, if I'm kind of asked, you know, ask your, 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 your friends who've retired earlier than you that are already on, you know, Medicare. Hey, how'd you do this on your own? Who'd you seek out for assistance? Right. If you work with a professional advisor, I'm sure he or she might have a referral as mm -hmm. well. Exactly. Right. That could maybe help you shop around that Medicare Advantage to find what's right for you. Mm -hmm. But again, it's, it's asking people you trust in your network. And I'm sure there could give you some some help with that. Definitely. Good Definitely. way of saying it. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Before we sign off, we have a listener question, AC. It's a good question. This like is a this. good one. This is a good one. So Jenna shared this with us uh, prior to the podcast today. Uh, I'm going to read the question and then I'm happy to go first. You can go first. Yeah. We'll see what you want to do. So this question comes from Tim. He's a regular listener. Question is, quote, I've always wondered how the market works as to buying and selling. When everybody is selling, i.e. he put market crash, who is buying these stocks? Is there any time there is no one to sell to, question mark. You want to go first or you yeah, want me to go? Yeah, I would say I'll take the the last kind of, is there any time there is no one to sell to? And I would say it's infrequent, but it's a possibility if there's very, very low volume in the stock, for example. So mm -hmm. say it's a really, really small company and there's just not a huge market for it. Um, it's possible that you could have trouble getting out of it for mm -hmm. sure, yeah. especially if you're trading a large quantity. Um, but really how, how buying selling works is again, there's a buyer and a seller, but it's usually the exchanges job. So think of the New York stock exchange or any broker brokerage company. It's their job to make a market 
for these for these stocks. So their job is to create a bid and ask spread. So they're going to purchase stocks from say say I'm selling XYZ stock. The broker might buy that and then go sell it to someone who's looking to buy it. And how they make money is the spread or the difference. Exactly, exactly. So that's really, really how the buying and selling works behind the scenes. Um, anything you wanted to add? No, I think you did a good job. I say, Tim, the other thing I'll say is, you know, this is what causes those jumps up or down, especially when the market opens. So, you know, the market has the ability to move and at times move drastically between the market closing and the next time it opens up. So let's use the example of a weekend, mm -hmm. especially in this type of volatile environment. It's not uncommon for XYZ stock to close at 100 even, in my example, on Friday at 4 o'clock East, East Coast time, and then on Monday morning at 9.30 East Coast time when the market opens. Hypothetically, that could stock could open up. Yeah, it could open up at 80. It could open up at 90. It could open up at 110. And what causes those movements is as you're connecting the excess supply or lack of supply mm -hmm. on the upside, you know, that is kind of the price discovery method that happens. The one thing that you've really seen, especially in this downturn that really accelerated in the month of April, is for the most part, it's been pretty orderly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you have the market going down, there's people out there, Tim, who think, oh, this is gonna, it's gonna turn around quickly. I'm willing to buy this stock at a 5% discount to where it was yesterday with the hopes that either I'm timing it right or my feelings on the market, et cetera. And it's this price discovery in the market of the historical supply and demand, mm -hmm. you know, equations that really make this market go up and down. Right. And when you have excess sellers in this market, the people who are willing to buy it are going to want a discount mm -hmm. for a margin of safety. Right. Right. And that's what causes these types of movements. And I'll just say a lot of these movements happens when the markets close, like when essence, when the market opens, what people are willing to buy or sell something at. Um, the other thing I think that causes um, a lot of volatility is in times of heightened volatility, I think market makers aren't going to take as much risk. Right. So they're going to ask for bigger spreads, bigger spreads to cushion themselves. Mm -hmm. So let's go back to my hundred dollar XYZ stock example. If that market maker is matching up buyers and sellers, they don't want to get stuck holding the bag. So they might, what normally might be a five cent spread between the buyer and seller might end up being a 20%, a 20 cent uh, spread, I'm sorry, Aaron, uh, to protect that they have more time right. to find a buyer or seller so they don't get caught losing money exactly. in that transaction. So uh, Tim, I hope that helped provide some perspective. Um, just remember, you know, we are now seeing the, the downside uh, aspect and remember, in, in times where the market rallies, you just have people who are unwilling to sell or, yeah, I'll sell that stock, mm -hmm. but it, I'll sell it for 5% higher than where it's at today. Right, right. And that's what causes these, these up and down volatile movements. The last thing that comes to mind, Aaron, is this is why you tend to see more volatility during earnings season. Mm -hmm. Because new data is hitting the market, new information that is impacting that stock positively or negatively, and that tends to cause more movements. Right. People Good. are processing it as soon as they see it. Good right? way of saying that? Exactly. It's perfect. Okay. 
Well, uh, listeners and viewers continue to send the questions our way. We love them. Um, and uh, you can uh, submit those inquiries uh, through our website at jessupwealthmanagement.com. There's a podcast tab, Jenna, that they can submit uh, all those questions. Uh, before we sign off on uh, podcast 149, Aaron, anything else you want to say? That's it. Had all a right. Great time. Well, thank you for listening to episode 149 of the Independent Advisors podcast. Aaron and I hope you have a wonderful rest of your week, and we will be back next week with 150. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.